All right. Hey, if you guys have your Bibles, just open them. See where the Spirit leads. Right? Trying to figure out how tall Preston is. There you go. Hey, uh, let's just pray. Ask God to just speak to us through his word. Father God, thank you so much for this series. We thank you for laying certain things on our heart through your word that are important to you and they should be important to us. And so help us just to drive towards these things and uh, in everything, just honor you. And we love you and we thank you that we're able to be here. A lot of churches are not able to meet together. Uh, We're grateful that we can. And so we love you and this we ask in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you guys knew this, today was the 104th running of the Indianapolis 500. I grew up in Indiana, I grew up going to the race, I grew up going to the time trials, Um, saw my first death, it went morbid fast, right? Saw my first death ever at the track where somebody hit the wall and that was the end. Um, But it was just a part of my life, in fact, I think it's interesting, uh, this picture is taken from the brickyard, this is the the finish line where they have one yard of bricks. And a lot of times the racers, they use the bricks because they can feel that bump when they go over the bri- bricks and it helps them knowing where to set up for turn one. And it is a very calculated thing and they are just ripping across uh, uh, around the track. And I remember, I can't remember what year it was. I, w- I want to say it was 1991 or 92, but I went to the track for the race. And I think I've shared this with you, but if I have, just pretend like it's the first time you've ever heard it. But my seats were in turn three, and we're watching the warm-up laps. This is when they're just getting their tires warmed up. They're getting ready to, to go green. It's all the pre-race stuff that they do. They're moving back and forth, warming their tires up. And we're watching them come out of turn two and towards us. And we're all excited. Everybody's standing. Uh, Over 500,000 people are on their feet. We're watching them. And the pole sitter, Roberto Guerrero, as he's warming up his tires, just goes flying right off the track and into the infield fence. And that was the end of his day. The fastest car of the month, and his race was over before it even started. And I was like, man, how do you just get off track like that? I thought about that this past Monday, because this past Monday, I decided to wake up a little earlier and go for a bike ride, all right? Now, most of you can tell that exercise would be a good thing for me, so I told Sarah on Sunday night, I'm going to wake up a little early, and I'm going to ride my bike. And my thought was this. My thought was there, there's the trail that goes all the way around Loveland, okay? You guys know this trail? So I thought, man, I'm going to ride some of the trail. So I went over to Mahaffey Park, and I got on the trail, and I started working my way around, and I got to where the fairgrounds are. Um, now, one thing I forgot to tell you, I left my cell phone at home because it was dead, so I decided I'll charge it, but I'll be fine. I'm a grown man. Um, make my way through the fairgrounds, and I'm like, I've never made it beyond the fairgrounds. And so I found where the trail goes. I worked my way through the city over by the Y, or not the Y, the Chilson Center. And next thing I know, I'm by uh, Boyd Lake. All right? Now, if you've ridden the area by Boyd Lake, um, at the very north end of Boyd Lake, the, the path comes out to the road. 
And I saw where the path goes because there's concrete that goes north. And so I'm like, well, that obviously is the trail. And I can see some of you are like, you idiot, it goes to the left. Well, I didn't know it. So I went to the right. And the next thing I know, I am biking through Fort Collins. <laughs> and I'm thinking at some point in time, this thing's going to go west. At some point in time, this thing's going to go west. I have a meeting in Fort Collins pretty soon. Maybe I should just ride my bike to where the meeting is. But I'm like, that's not good. I don't have anything with me, and I'm going to be sweaty and stinky. So I just, I'm like, okay. I'm, so I start heading back to Loveland. I make myself over to 287, and I make, my, make it home at the exact time my meeting was supposed to start in Fort Collins, and I had to basically grovel, and I'm the one that called the meeting, which made it extra embarrassing for me. So, here's what I learned. Make sure you know where the path goes before you start. And so on Wednesday, I did the path again. I went the reverse way, and I figured out, oh, it's right here. It was 10 yards from where I went right except it was to the left. And so we learn as we go. We learn how the path goes. We learn as Christians the path that we're to take. And we stick into God's word. And as God shows us which way we need to go, it's important for us to go that direction. And so we've been talking about our core values. And the first one, obviously, in the direction that we want to go, we call it a relentless pursuit that God's word would be absolutely one of the most important things to our lives, that it would be the ultimate guide when it comes to our lives, that we would look at everything in this world through the lens of Scripture. And we call that a biblical worldview, that when you guys are looking at life, when you're asking questions, when you're trying to figure out what to do, the first stop, the very first thing that we would do is we would go to God's word. And not only would we go to God's word, we would then try to figure out how we can line our life up with it. And that is so important. And so that's what we want to do. Second Timothy uh, 3 says that Scripture is God-breathed, that it is inspired by God. He wrote it out through men. He breathed it out, spoken into existence through the writing of men. And it has never been proven wrong. Isn't that amazing? There are other faiths out there that have spent millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to prove some of their things accurate, and they never have. And Christianity, in God's word, has never been proven wrong. Now, here's the thing, and don't miss this. I could write five pages, and you would find air in it, all right? Here's five pages. I would hand it to my wife, and she'd go, oh, my gosh. There's mistakes all over this place. And yet God would write 66 books, put them together largely in two parts, 1,189 chapters, 31,102 verses, 783,137 words. Never, ever has it been proven error because God wrote it. He breathed it out, and it can't be wrong. I love the great theologian B.B. Warfield. He said it best, the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. The second one that we talked about was next generation. That we're instructed by God to pass off the things that we have learned and the, the scriptures that are important, um, or they're all important, but the scriptures that we've learned and pass them on to our children. 
And I like to say it's the generation now, our young people. Half this room is young people. And they are so important. And I want to spend eternity with them. Not that I don't want to spend eternity with all the old people, but the young folks, they're just more fun. And I want to be with them. It is our job, parents, to invest into our children spiritually. 3 John 1.4 says, I could have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following the truth. Authentic community was another one of our core values, and this is one of the main reasons God designed the church, that we would have community together so that you wouldn't have to go through this life alone, that we can link, link arms together, we can pray together, that we can be an encouragement to one another, that we can sit down and we can talk about the things of God and the things that God wants us to do. And this is so important for us, and it's what, one of the, my favorite things about the church, that we actually get to do this together, and I'm just a people person and even when there's quarrels, even when there's things where people, when maybe there's miscommunication or people are not seeing eye to eye, that we can sit down together and we can work those things out. That is one of the beautiful things about God. The church is the one place where we can work things out because we are family. And we believe here that circles are better than rows. And Jesus had his 12 and then he had his three, Peter, James, and John. And so we're going to stress over the next few weeks, life groups and DNA groups, things where we actually sit down together and we sharpen iron together. And then we talked about intentional outreach. And the fact is, is that we believe that God, and we believe in God, and we believe that salvation only comes through him and through the grace that is found through his son, Jesus Christ, and sacrifice that he made on the cross. And if that is true, and we really believe it, it should be a primary goal that we share that with the lost world. That we would go out there and we would tell people about the love of Christ and the message of Jesus and that we would start it in our families and that we would try to reach our neighbors, our actual neighbors, and then our sphere of influence, the places where we go, the people that we see on a more regular basis. Maybe it's at the grocery store. Maybe it's at your favorite restaurant. Wherever it is in the rec league where you see people more than others. And then last week, Andrew talked to us about irrational generosity. And if you are not here, I just highly recommend that you go online and listen to the message that Andrew preached. It was just really, really well done. But irrational basically means that it's not going to be logical. It's not going to be reasonable to the outside world. They're going to look at the church and they're going to say, that doesn't make any sense. Do you know what you could do with all that money for yourself? And so it's not going to make any sense to them. And as the train goes by, <laughs> it makes perfect sense to God. All right? I'm going to let him go. There we go. All right. Mark it down. It is 543. All right. You guys marking that down? So there we go. It, it makes perfect sense to God. And what God wants to do is he wants it to make perfect sense to Christ followers. That we would be generous to the church. And the church can be generous not only back to you, but to the community that we live in. So here's the deal, and this is really cool. If any of you are in need, 
we would be there for one another. This is family. And so if somebody's got a struggle, we would be there for one another. And that's why we give the way we do. And so that's a good thing. But I think it, for me, and this is what really stood out to me last week as Andrew was speaking, it comes down to this question. Do I truly trust God that he will provide for me? Do I really trust him that he is going to provide for me and my family? Is he going to provide for this church? I was speaking to somebody earlier this week, and I was sharing how things were always a little crazy financially for me, and then I got married. And I've, I've shared this with you guys before, but Sarah looked at my finances and said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And she says, we're getting this organized, and the first thing we're going to do is we're going to start tithing regularly. And so we did. But I'm like, okay, but we live in Southern California, and, you know, I'm in debt. She didn't know we were in debt when we got married. You should probably cover that before you get married. (laughs) But we just started to basically honor God with what he blessed us with. In a very short amount of time, in less than two years, we were 100% debt-free. And my credit score went from the negatives to over 800. And the really cool thing is this. Now get this. We never missed a meal, obviously. (laughs) We always had a roof over our head. God always provided And the really cool thing is we never had anybody calling asking for money. Collectors. That's a really good thing. That feels good when people are not calling saying, hey, you're in trouble. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I like how he says, hey, when the leftovers are there, here's what I want you to do with the leftovers. I want you to share that. So it's like share and then share some more. And that's what God wants to, and he says, if you do that, I will take care of you. I will always take care of you. And as we dig into today's core value, which is church multiplication, I want to go back to the book of Genesis. And you don't have to turn there. We're going to just talk about a passage that you know probably pretty well if you've been in church for a while. But in Genesis chapter 1, after God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and first God blesses them, and then he told them, this is really my favorite passages in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. woo Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth is what he tells them. And the word fruitful... In the Hebrew, basically means that you are going to have children. You are going to be fruitful, producing fruit, fill the earth. And that is exactly what they did. And when you do that, it becomes multiplication. And the earth multiplied from that moment. Then because of sin, God destroyed the earth and then Noah and his family. And from the time of Noah, and get this, the world population since the time of Noah has risen to 7.75 billion people with a growth rate of just over 1% a year, which if you're doing the math, puts us at a projected growth rate of nearly 80 million people this year. So what do you do with that? And as I was praying through that this week, and even this morning, as long as people are being fruitful and multiplying, the church 
must be fruitful and multiplying. It is what we need to do. And being fruitful and multiplying directly applies to the vision and the mission of the church. See, Jesus gives all Christians a charge. And most of you are going to know this verse, and we've mentioned it many times, and it's basically the mission statement of almost every Christian church that I know, some version of Matthew 28. It's also recorded in Mark 16. But here's what Jesus says in verse 18 through 20. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, which basically means all people everywhere, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples. Now, this isn't going to be as popular today. But this is verse 20. It says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's pretty fascinating. What does that look like? And some of you know, um, I was trying to think of an illustration for this. Some of you, <laughs> most of you, notice or probably have known that I have developed kind of a fascination with fireworks over the last couple months. It's really an unhealthy thing, but it's a lot of fun and there are a lot worse things that I could do with my time and money, all right? <laughs> so I've been donating plasma to buy fireworks because <laughs> that's how mature I am, <laughs> all right? But this renewed passion that I have for fireworks, it has really kicked into another gear, and I'm just kind of gearing up for New Year's and then next summer, and I just kind of figured if I go to Wyoming a couple times a month and I just get some here and some there, by next summer, I'm going to have a whole arsenal of explosives, and it's going to be amazing. And then Isaiah and I are going to figure out where to go camping in Wyoming because none of the things that I have are legal to set off here. Alex, I will leave the state, okay, to light off my fireworks. But here's the cool thing. Um, I brought one of my cases tonight. These are four-inch canister shells. And I thought, man, what? I don't, I don't know of a better example of what we're trying to share than this right here. And I've been praying for a good illustration for fireworks for over a month. So this is it right here. Here's the deal. If I take one of these uh, shells out and we look at it and we drop it into a tube, there are two main components of the shell. All right? There's the charge which is what shoots it up, and it's in the bottom section of it. And they pack it with powder, and then they fuse it. And then the fuse goes up through, and it's working its way through as it's going up into the air. And it gets to the highest point, hopefully, and they've measured it all out right. And that's when we see the break, and it explodes. And there are different effects, and there's all sorts of effects. In fact, you can look at all the effects that all 24 shells have. It's incredible. I mean, come on, people. It's amazing. Oh, man, it's awesome. All right. And I'm like, okay. So Jesus gives us a charge, and he expects us to go, and then we break out, and then hopefully people will see the light. That's pretty amazing. That's what he wants us to do, to be like that and to spread 
God's word. And there were two ways in which they usually did this. But then when, you, when Jesus says what he says in Matthew 28, we pay attention. When Jesus says something twice, you really kind of buckle in on it, all right? Not that everything that Jesus says isn't important, but when he says it twice, I want to pay extra attention. And so in Acts 1.8, and you guys have heard this too, but it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, that was the world that they knew to the ends of the earth. So we're to go out and share Jesus. He's calling us to be evangelists. No, evangelism or evangelist in the first century and before was not necessarily a spiritual term or a biblical term. It was a term, that it was a military term. And so if we all went out to war against, let's see, not Weld County, we'll go against Longmont. Weld County, they got a lot of guns. Um, <laughs> So if we go to war and we go to battle, all right, and let's say we win, because we will, because I have all the explosives, <laughs> um, somebody is going to come back and tell everybody back here, we have won, we've had victory. That's what it was in first century and before, is they would have an evangelist go back and tell the king, tell uh, whoever they needed to tell, we won, it is all good. And that was good news to them. And then, biblically speaking, it is the messenger who brings good news. That is what we have been called to do, to share good news with a lost world. And so Jesus lights a charge for everyone, anyone and everyone, that would consider themselves followers of him to send out, to be sent out, and we hit on one of those, which is intentional outreach, that personal relational evangelism. But the other is buying, being a part of raising up churches, raising up disciples, mature followers of Jesus, and the believers become churches. And when you read throughout the New Testament, this is what we see. In fact, read, just read the book of Acts. And it's really one of the primary ways that they evangelized to a lost world. In the book of Titus, my wife and I actually read the entire book this morning during our Devo time. And man, it changed my whole sermon. Titus 1.5 says this. This is why I left you in Crete. This is Paul talking to Titus who is left in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. His goal was this, to establish believers and elders in every town. And this is how they planted churches, by raising up people. Raising up people. And that is what we should be doing. We should be raising each other up so that we would all qualify according to God's Holy Scripture to teach one another. And I think that is probably one area that we need to do better.
We need to do a better job of cultivating that at Revive. And Sarah and I need to do a better job of modeling this in our lives for you. And so as you continue to read through Titus, and I just encourage you to do that, you need to start to understand what God is looking for and what we should be looking for. Not only when it comes to elders in the church, but for people that we will send out and be a part of raising up another church. Notice some of the things that God looks for when we raise people up, which should be all of us. In Titus chapter 1, just in two verses, 6 and 7, we're looking for, and this is kind of looking at men, to have a blameless life, to be faithful to his wife, that his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A manager of God's household, that they would not be arrogant, that they would not be quick-tempered, but rather nonviolent, that they wouldn't be a heavy drinker, that they would not get drunk. And they must be honest when it comes to money. The things that they should be. In verse 8, here's what it addresses. They must enjoy having guests in his home. They must love what is good. They must live wisely and be just. They must live devout and disciplined life and have a strong belief in the truth of God's word. How did we do? Because of those things, they're able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those that oppose it how they are wrong. And he says, as for you, Titus, as a leader, you need to promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach others to exercise self-control, to live worthy of respect, live wisely, to have sound faith, to be filled with love and patience. And ladies, you're not exempt. Now it's your turn. And he addresses the ladies and he says, teach these ladies to live in a way that honors God, to not slander others, which means you will not gossip. Nothing that tears others down. That you also will not be heavy drinkers. That you will teach other women what is good. You'll train the women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and pure. You'll take care of the home and submit to the authority of your husband. Don't get mad at me, you can get mad at God, because he wrote it. Those are the things. And as we read through that and listen to that, man, are we qualified? Do we qualify? Maybe a better way to say it is this. Are we in a pursuit of that kind of life? Are we pursuing that? And where do we need to get better when we read through that? So that we can have the life that honors God and each of us can pursue that kind of living. I love the way the Life Application Study Bible Commentary addresses this in regards to a similar passage in Paul's first letter to Timothy. It says, All believers, even if they never plan to be church leaders, should strive to follow these guidelines because they are consistent with what God says is true and right. For example, some people are effectively able to teach who never teach 
or, for, or lead formally at church. Their lessons are passed on to one another. They become mentors of spiritual truth. Paul described this intimate kind of teaching in 2 Timothy 2.2. He says, you have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who are able to pass them on to others. And if you have been able to communicate your faith clearly to another person, you have demonstrated teaching at its best. Love that. And as you read through the book of Acts, you'll notice the two ways that drove the apostles to evangelize to a lost world, and then later Paul would take it to an entirely new level. They would preach the message of Jesus everywhere they went. They would establish elders for churches. They were planting churches. Wow. So I made a list, and these are just the ones that we know of. They planted one in Ephesus, several. In fact, Ephesus was full of churches. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Heropolis, Philippi, the households of Lydia and the jailer in Philippi. Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia, Cyprus, Crete, Was there one in Damascus? Probably, because that's where Saul, before Paul, was headed to go arrest them. So something was going on. Acts 15 mentions churches in Syria, Antioch. Not to mention, and this is really the cool thing, this is what we want to do, all the daughter churches and granddaughter churches. So a church would plant churches, and those churches would plant churches that we would raise one another up so that we can be the church that God wants us to be. The Joshua Project, you can go to joshuaproject.net, and it gives you some stats, um, some pretty overwhelming stats. And I already mentioned one, which was that our current population is 7.75 billion people. That's a lot of people. The population unreached is 3.22 billion people. And as long as there are people out there that don't know the love of Jesus Christ, that are not in a relationship with him, I believe we need more churches. And that phrase kind of bothers me because I always thought, man, do we really need more churches? There seems to be a lot of churches And I don't do this often, but I just feel led to kind of stress this now. We do not need more churches that tickle the ears of people and tell them what they want to hear. But we do need more churches that powerfully preach preach the grace and truth of Jesus Christ and do it unapologetically. Churches that don't hesitate to preach God's word. Because the more churches we have that do that, the percentages go up on reaching those people for Jesus. And here's the other cool thing is, I don't want all the churches to be alike. We're a jeans and flip-flop kind of church. That's just me. Okay, we're relaxed. 
We still want to hold God in reverence. There's a lot of different churches, and they're going to do different kind of things. The methodology of church is always going to change, and cosmetics of churches is always going to be different. But the message should never change, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how my friend um, and church planting, way more of an expert than me, Alan Briggs, who's down in Colorado Springs, he told Andrew and I, when we asked him the question, how many churches, he said, I want churches tripping over each other. He says, because maybe that church will reach somebody that you are not able to. It's important for us as a church, Revive, that we invest in church multiplication, church planting, which is why Revive gives 10% of all our tithes and offerings back into church planting. Because there's a lot of churches and people that have invested into us. And so we tithe into that. Currently, so 5% goes to Nexus Church Planting Leadership, which now supports Andrew. <laughs> so he's happy about that. The other 5% to a specific church plant. And so if somebody comes to us or if we're able to do it ourselves, we want to be in the process of planting a church. And I'm so proud of you guys because of what you've given so far. Uh, currently, right now, we have $13,157.30 to give to a specific church plant. And as a church planter, I will tell you that will be a huge blessing for church planting. So, we want to continue to do our best to lead you up because who knows, maybe God is going to lay it on your heart to be a part of something like that. So I'm going to end our time with guess what? <laughs> Fireworks. Fireworks go out. They break out. And hopefully their light will be seen by everyone around. And guys, that's what our church should do. As God gives us a charge that we would go out, we would break out, and we would let the light shine for all the world to see. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much again for tonight and speaking to us through your word and for setting the example of how we are to be as a church. And I pray that these core values won't just be something that we'll preach about uh, once every other year, but it'll be something that we are driven to do, that we are driven to be into your word and that we will have a relentless pursuit, that we will invest in the next generation, that we'll have authentic community, that we'll be intentional with our outreach, that we'll give in ways that are just irrational, and that we will be just completely devoted to church multiplication. So help us to live these things out as a church. And this we ask in your name. Amen.